Well, good morning and happy Easter. He is risen. Uh, if I have not had the opportunity to meet you yet or uh, might not be able to this afternoon, I'm Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. I want you to know that if you are a guest of someone this morning or uh, you are a guest of ours this morning, I am so thankful that you are gathered to worship here. I know that there are a lot of great places throughout our city that you could have chosen to worship the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm really grateful that you are here today. Now, if you call the Oaks Church home already, you know that we're going through the book of Mark. So if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and find the book of Mark. Uh, we've got some on the back table. If you don't have one, we would love to gift you a copy of God's Word. The words will also be on the screen so that you can follow along. Now, we've been walking through the book of Mark for some time as a church together. But if this is your first day here with us in the book of Mark, you came on the best day in the book of Mark. Now, I'll, I'll just give you a, a quick uh, summary of, of why this book is so important. Not only because it is uh, the divinely inspired word of God, but also because of Mark's intention as the Holy Spirit moved him along to write this book. Now, now Mark was a close friend of the Apostle Peter. Uh, you can almost picture him like an intern of, uh, you know, the Apostle Peter's. And so he is writing everything in this book with the perspective of a close eyewitness, with the perspective of one of the closest followers of Jesus. And so as we're seeing the events unfold, as we behold the resurrection, it is almost as if he is inviting us to stand there next to the empty tomb. Now, the book of Mark was written about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. The primary audience was those Christians in Rome, but you will quickly see why this book gives us so much hope today because this book was written so that you and I would read it and see that Jesus is undeniably and irrefutably the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Now, I want you to find Mark chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. And as you turn there, I want to give you a couple of key dates in my life. And I'll tell you the point that I'm making here in a moment. Uh, so August 31st, March 17th, June 16th, and February 6th. Those are key dates in my life because those are single days in my personal history that my life changed forever, that the trajectory of my life changed forever. Now, the first one, August 31st, that's my birthday, all right? So if you want to keep note of that, I like Reese's, August 31st. Now, obviously, that date had a huge impact on me because without it, I would not be here. Second, March 17th. Why is that so significant? Well, it's, it's the, the day that Abby and I got married, best decision that I ever made. We, we obviously, uh, our, both of our lives changed forever on that day. Why June 16th or February 6th? That's the day that I held both of my boys in my hands for the very first time. Brooks, our oldest son, Charlie, our youngest son. And, and in that moment, it's almost as if time stops, right? The world stops spinning. Everything about your life changes in a matter of seconds. In one ceremony on your wedding day, the first breath you take, changes everything. Why do, why do I say that? Because, because I want us to feel the gravity of what a difference one day can make. Perhaps some of us, we, we think, yeah, I mean, those, those days are great. One day can make all the difference when our lives move from good to better, but what about the hard days? What about the days that mark our lives that 
that changed forever because they were difficult, because they were hard. I mean, I think each one of us probably have a couple dates on our calendar that we kind of dread whenever they get around each year. Maybe for you that day would be the last time that you spoke to a loved one, a grandparent, a parent, or a sibling. And that day's bittersweet because you're reminded of those moments of joy and the memories you shared, but also that and on this side of eternity, you won't see them again. That date's hard. Uh, for some of you, you remember the day that the doctor came in and said, I've got bad news. It's cancer. Uh, maybe you remember the day that, that you found out your parents were splitting up. These are, these are days that painfully remind us that one day can make a huge difference in our lives. And whenever we come to Mark chapter 16, we realize that the disciples of Jesus are having one of those kind of days. A day that is full of difficulty. Uh, the, the flame of hope in Christ seemed to be extinguished by a tidal wave of despair. Imagine what they were feeling in that moment. Consider those moments for you. Maybe it was a, a sudden breakup. You, you applied for a job that, that you didn't get. It, it almost seemed like the rug of your expectations was pulled swiftly out from underneath you. You saw your five-year plan slip through your fingers. Maybe, maybe if, you, if you can grasp that feeling, you understand to a degree what the disciples were feeling before Sunday came. The kind of fear or shame or regret or hopeless despair they felt as they sat in that room behind locked doors. It was almost as if they were drowning in a sea of hopelessness and felt helpless to do anything about it. I mean, think about how quickly the events of Holy Week progressed. Uh, what, if, what if by some chance, right, you could look into the Apostle Peter's journal of what had taken place that week. You would read that on Thursday, things seemed to be pretty normal. On Thursday evening, they had dinner with Jesus and they're, you know, they're, all, they're all sitting around the table and Jesus you know, says some puzzling things about being betrayed and then Judas leaves. But I mean, they, they didn't really comprehend what was going on. I mean, Jesus often said things that went over their head. He was God after all. And so Peter's like, oh, I don't really know. They, they go from the home then to the garden of Gethsemane. And while they're praying, swiftly Jesus is seized. Things just progressively move faster. Perhaps they're starting to understand what a difference one day could make. And it felt like a bad dream that they couldn't wake up from because within 24 hours, the very hands of Christ that washed their feet would be fastened to a Roman cross. And between two thieves, the Son of God would cry out, it is finished. And he who promised life abundant hung lifeless on the cross. The exalted king had been crucified. I imagine if you were an onlooker, one of the disciples, you saw Christ utter his last, you would say, man, what a, what a difference a day makes. We're just walking with him, talking with him yesterday. He was crucified, hung above the world that he promised to save. I think the darkened sky on that day was probably an apt reflection of what the disciples' hearts must have felt like. Sure, Jesus was buried on Friday night, but so were their hopes for the future. Jesus promised that he would bring the kingdom of God. 
Jesus promised to give his followers access to the living God. He promised to forgive them of their sins. He promised to provide the path of heaven because he himself was the way. But I imagine those promises rang hollow in the disciples' hearts as long as his body was in the grave on that Saturday. I think it's hard to overestimate the pain of Saturday. Grief, regret, and shame undoubtedly filled the room where the disciples sat in fear that they would face the same fate as the Lord they followed. Imagine Mary. She witnessed her firstborn son lose his life in the most tragic way. Can you imagine that pain as a mother? Consider Peter for a moment as he sat there uh, thinking about the, the last words that Jesus heard from his mouth across the courtyard, that he cursed himself and said, I don't know that man. I've never known that man. I don't even know anything about him. How would Mary Magdalene have felt? Do you think maybe she had this fear that perhaps with the Jesus gone, that the seven demons that he released from her would somehow return with a vengeance? And yet we don't have to speculate what that Saturday felt like, right? Not because we were there, but because you and I know the experience of the Saturday of the soul all too well. We know what those moments feel like. No, we weren't there, but we know what that Saturday feels like. We know what, what that brokenness, what that despair, what that helplessness and hopelessness feels like. Let's put some teeth to it. Maybe you think about conversations that you wish that you could take back. Maybe that, that Saturday of the soul occurs for you because you know that there are moments throughout your life, whenever you reflect on them, that you wish that you could go and relive them just to change the outcome and what took place. I think we all know the guilt and shame of, of sinful patterns in our lives that have damaged our relationships with others and ultimately separated us from God. We know what it's like. We know this Saturday of the soul. We know the discouragement of the gap that's between who we are and who we want to be. I don't think you have to be sitting among the disciples to know what that Saturday felt like. I think even Christians, perhaps, at times, we, we forget that we live in the Sunday of Christ's resurrection. We find ourselves drifting back into that feeling of Saturday whenever Satan accuses us of past sin that we know that is forgiven. When we find ourselves in cycles of sin that we feel like we can't break. Whenever we, we find ourselves wrestling with the reality of our forgiveness and think, would God really want anything to do with me? Here, I think both Christian and unbeliever alike can resonate all too well with the pain of Saturday but what a difference one day can make. You see, the morning and the grief of Saturday night was eclipsed by the good news of Sunday morning. And because the tomb is empty, anything is possible. The empty tomb changes everything. The empty tomb fills us with hope and peace and security that we indeed can have a relationship with God because it was secured by the Son of God and the Savior of the world who put death to death and laid sin in its grave, that through his life we might have life to the full. To see what a difference one day can make, let's look at Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. God's word tells the story 
of that Sunday morning, beginning in verse 1, we read that when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. They want to go and anoint the body of Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. In verses 1 through 8 here, we behold the reality of Resurrection Sunday, the day that made the difference. I want to walk through this passage. I want us to grasp the story in full, and then I want us to see three conclusions that are proven through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now first, let's dig into verse 1 a little bit. We read that this was when the Sabbath was passed. We know that the Sabbath was the Jewish day of rest. That would have been Saturday in our days of the week. And so we know no work was to be done. All shops were closed. And so here we find these three women first thing Sunday morning, as the sun is beginning to rise, they meet the shopkeeper. They are the first ones there and they are buying spices. Now, why were they buying these spices? Because they, they intended to go and to anoint the dead and decaying body of Jesus. That was their intention. Much like you or I would, would purchase flowers to put at the graveside or the tombstone of a loved one, they'd bought these spices and they were going to honor Jesus by anointing his dead body. And their, their actions displayed, yes, their love, but also their forgetfulness. Now, now these women, I, I think we view them much more favorably than the disciples of Jesus that are somewhere cowering behind locked doors. And at the same time, whenever you look through this gospel account, even in the book of Mark, you see in Mark chapter 8, in Mark chapter 9, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus in no uncertain terms says... Yes, I will lay down my life. My life will be taken from me, but in three days I will rise again. He promised again and again. He foretold as only God could, I will rise again from the dead. And, and these three women, they, they go to anoint his dead body, and it is nowhere to be found because he indeed has risen. He has fulfilled the promise that he made. But let's look again at verse 2. They're headed to the tomb, and they don't have to ask for directions. They know the exact tomb that Jesus had been buried in because, as we saw at the close of Mark 15 last week, that these women stood from a distance as Joseph of Arimathea put the body of Jesus in his own tomb. There's no question as to if maybe they got mixed up and went to the wrong tomb. No, they were here three days earlier. And so, so they are headed toward the tomb that the body of Jesus was placed in. And, and as we see in verses 3 through 4, they're walking toward the tomb. They've got these spices in hand. And immediately a question enters their mind. What about the stone? 
What about this heavy stone that would have taken multiple men to move? How are they going to anoint the body of Jesus if they couldn't get into the tomb in which they suspected his body to lay? Well, they, they just continued to walk toward the tomb, hoping that maybe there would be someone there who would be able to roll the stone away from them so that they could honor Jesus' body in this way. But as they get to the tomb, they are met with great surprise. Why? Because they find that the stone does not need to be rolled away, but in fact, the stone has already been rolled away. Now, one of the great things about Mark's gospel is he's always moving fast, right? He's, he's trying to give us the, the good details that we need as fast as he can. But in, in Matthew's account, he stretches the story out a little bit more. He said that, in, in fact, there was this great earthquake that came that, that moved the stone. And an angel rolled back the stone to the tomb. In fact, this moment was so shocking that the war-hardened Roman soldiers that were sent to guard the tomb fell as if they were lifeless next to the entrance of the tomb, paralyzed by shock at what had just taken place. As, as they would see that the tomb was empty, we, we find that Mary Magdalene's first thought was actually that grave robbers had come and, and maybe they had stolen the body of Jesus. And what she will soon hear from the angel is life-changing news that the body of Jesus had not been stolen, but that indeed he had been raised. This empty tomb was full of hope. The removing of the stone would not just send an earthquake through Jerusalem, but a spiritual earthquake that would go through the entire world, bringing life to all who would believe. In verse 5, we see that they entered the tomb. Now, Let's stop for a moment and consider a question that you might not have thought of before. Why did the angel move the stone? Why did God have the stone rolled away? Was it so that, that Jesus could get out of the tomb? I mean, perhaps that is, is the most obvious conclusion that would first come to mind. But later what we will see is that whenever he appears to his disciples, although he has a physically resurrected body, although he is able to eat, he could, you can touch him, he's able to enter into rooms with locked doors. So, so the reality is not that the stone had to be moved so that Jesus could get out. No, God rolled away the stone so that we could get in. God rolled away the stone to the tomb in which Jesus was laid so that the whole world would be able to step in and see that Christ indeed has been raised. And if he is indeed raised, then he has power to keep every promise that he has made. Let me ask you a question, perhaps an examination question for a moment. What stones could God be moving in your life so that you would truly see who Jesus is? Maybe you're here and you were invited by a friend. Could you see that as a way that perhaps God is inviting you to see who his son truly is? Maybe you're, you're sitting here and God has answered a prayer or there's this, even this discomfort that you feel. Could God perhaps be moving an obstacle so that you could see who he truly is, so that you could believe and have life in his name? See, the stone was rolled away, not so that Jesus could get out, but so that the whole world could get in. And just inside the tomb, we find that there is an angel that's sitting there. Mark describes this as a young man, but the other gospel writers, it's the beauty of having four gospel accounts. They fill in some more details here. Mark says that he was robed in white 
It's as if he was clothed in lightning. Luke will tell us that there were two angels there, but Mark, only being concerned with the angel that speaks this good news, says that there was an angel sitting in the tomb as the women walked in. And and the news that he shares understandably shocked the women to the core. Because what does he say in verse 6? Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. He gets specific, doesn't he? He's saying, you're seeking Jesus. But not just any man named Jesus. No, you're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Then he gets more specific. Not just Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified on Friday. That Jesus, that Jesus who was pronounced dead by a professional Roman executioner at the scene of the cross, that Jesus whose body was laid right here in this tomb, this Jesus, he's not here, for he has risen. And I mean, immediately there, they they understand. There's a sense of awe, understanding that this is not just the, the words of of some hopeful angel. No, this is a declaration from the very throne room of God that the Son of God has risen and everything he was sent to do by the will of God had been fully and completely accomplished through his substitutionary death and his rising on Sunday morning. And so what do you do with news like this? Verse seven tells us. These women were told to go, to go tell the disciples, go tell Peter, Jesus is going before you and you will see him just as he told you. I believe here that there is an important detail given in the angel's instruction that points to the historical legitimacy of this gospel story. You see, in the first century, uh, the testimony of, of a woman was often discredited and undervalued. Unfair, yes, but true. And who are the recipients of this message that were to go and tell the disciples, that were to be the ones who would be the first to receive this message that would ultimately change the entire world. It was these three women. Now it's, it's significant because in, in the first century, the court, even the court systems said that the testimony of a woman was uh, valued as less accurate than the testimony of a convicted criminal. So, so why is it that each gospel writer would tell the story in this way because they are restating the facts just as they happened. If, if this was supposed to be some sort of legend that had been fabricated by the disciples, they would never tell it in this way. The, the gospel writers would have never written this story in this way if their only goal was to make a myth something to be believed as fact. And yet they give stunning precision, precision, historical, accurate claims. As they say, these were the three women that heard this message and these were the three women that brought this message to the disciples. I'm, I'm comforted by the words that the angel says because these words that were undoubtedly given by Jesus to the angel to relay reveal the heart of Jesus for his disciples, for Peter, and for people like us. Because what does he say? He says, go. 
Go tell his disciples. Go tell the disciples of Jesus. And go tell Peter. He is going before you to Galilee, and you will see him. Jesus wanted to see his disciples, the disciples that had abandoned him, the disciples that ran in fear from the opponents of Jesus, the disciples that left Jesus to die as he was taken away, even the disciple Peter, who committed the most egregious sin against him within earshot of Christ in the courtyard. And what does Jesus say? Go find my disciples. I'm going to gather with them in Galilee. We, we find that it, later that he doesn't even wait until they get to Galilee. He appears to them before that because they're too scared. So he goes and finds them. Isn't that great news for us who are consistently inconsistent? For those of us who feel like we can't get our act together, uh, for those who, who are perhaps exhausted in trying to work our way to God, that the good news of the gospel is that Christ comes to you, that perhaps you are here today to hear this truth, that Christ comes to you, that he invites all who wander to find their way in him. Even mentioning Peter by name through the angel's words, to make the one who sinned against him a trophy of his grace. The women, they, they left the tomb trembling. They were astonished at what had happened, undoubtedly. But we find that they don't, they don't talk to anyone else. They, they don't stop to tell other people that they might see on the way or through the village. No, they run straight to the disciples to tell them what they had just experienced and what they heard. And in a matter of hours, their world was turned upside down. There is no greater contrast than the seeming defeat of Saturday and the triumph of Christ on Sunday. We look at this story and we behold what a difference one day can make. And because the tomb is empty, anything is possible. Connor read the, the passage earlier from 1 Corinthians that that accounts of, of Jesus for 40 days appearing to over 500 people, to, to appearing to different people in different places, to his disciples, to Peter again. You look at all of the other gospel accounts and there's just evidence after evidence of Jesus speaking to his disciples, giving peace to his disciples. And yet what we find in Mark chapter 16 is that his story ends almost rather abruptly. Why would Mark do that? I think it's because the ending of Mark's story is designed to be the beginning of yours. That the ending of Mark's account of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that this ending is designed to be the beginning of your life with Christ and understanding who he is. You see, the main point of this entire message is this, that the life of Jesus Christ offers eternal life to anyone that trusts in who he is and what he has done. The life of Jesus Christ, the resurrected life of Jesus offers eternal life. That's not just a matter of quantity, life everlasting, but quality, life with God to anyone that trusts in who he is and what he has done. I want to, I'm going to take the, the rest of our time together to, to just focus on those things. Who is Jesus? We want to trust in who he is and what he has done. For some of you, I, this is going to be a, a reminder of who God is. 
I, I pray that it, it breeds assurance of your relationship with God in you, that it, it fills your heart with joy, that it, that it causes a response of praise to flow through your heart and from your lips for others of you. This, this might be the day that you understand that Christ is not just a historical figure, but Savior and Lord of all who believe of you. There are three conclusions we take from this passage. The first is that the resurrection of Jesus proves that he is the Son of God. That Jesus indeed is the Son of God. You see, the women in our story didn't expect to see Jesus alive again whenever they walked to the tomb. And we can't blame them, right? Dead people don't come back to life. But Jesus did. You see, the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. He experienced an undeniable death and a physical resurrection. Now, now you might say, well, there were other people in, in Scripture that, that were brought back to life. You know, I mean, what about Jairus' daughter? What about Lazarus, uh, to, to mention a couple? Well, technically, those were resuscitations, not resurrections. Why is that the case? Well, because we know that they lived to die again, right? So, so Lazarus, I mean, he, he was brought back to life, yes, but he died again. Jesus, in his resurrection, had a perfected, glorified body, conquering death to never taste death again. We know that 40 days after his resurrection, he would ascend to his throne, that right now, as I'm speaking, Jesus is alive, seated on his throne. He lives to intercede for sinners and grant life to all who believe. He governs the entire world and holds every molecule in his hand. He is alive. And only the Son of God could conquer death like that. Only Jesus could say, as he did in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay my life down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from my Father. Romans 1, 4 speaks of how the resurrection irrefutably declares that Christ is the Son of God. It says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Acts 2.24 says that it was impossible for death to keep him. Even such a foe as death that we find ourselves fearing could not hold Christ in its grip. He proves his divinity through his resurrection. He proves his divinity through his ability to promise his resurrection before it even took place. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. It also proves that Jesus is the Savior of the world. The resurrection proves that Jesus, that he is the Savior of the world. Now, I probably don't have to convince you that the world needs saving. If you watch 15 minutes of the nightly news or scroll through yesterday's headlines, I imagine that you would reach the conclusion that we live in a world that is broken. You might even reach the conclusion that we live in a world that is broken by sin. You see, the problem is that we understand that the world is broken, but we often don't agree on the solution to the brokenness in the world. We see the problems, yes, but it's the preferred solution to these problems that often create debate. Some people say, you know, that, well, if, if the world is going to get any better, we need maybe new politicians or, or new policies in place. 
or the world would be a better place if we taught more of this in school or we taught less of this in school. Maybe, maybe you think that you know, the, the world would be better. All the problems in the world would be solved if we just each had an individual commitment to you know, kind of do better, right? To be the change we wish to see in the world or, or, or whatever, right? Now, I'm, I'm not saying that those things aren't important. I'm just saying that they don't get to the heart of the issue. But in fact, the reason that our world is broken goes deeper than that that our world needs a savior. And to fully understand this, we must go back. We must go way back, like the beginning of time back. You see, because God, who existed in all eternity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, created everything. And the moment that he created everything, he created it to be good. With each day of creation, he declares things good. And then as the crown of his creation, he created man and woman, created humanity in his image. He then placed Adam and Eve in the garden, to enjoy a perfect relationship with him and a perfect relationship with one another. That's how our story begins. And he gave one simple command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet, what happens? The story continues. Satan, the serpent, enters into the garden. He tempts Eve. As he tempts them, they disobey this one command of God. And at that moment, all of creation is fractured. Sin enters into the world and life as we know it is broken. Humanity was then separated from God. And to make matters worse, this matters to you and me. You see, you and I, we inherit the corrupted, sinful nature of our first parents. We have received an inheritance that we would have never wished on our worst enemy. And yet we find ourselves unable to keep the commands of God, hostile toward God, rebelling against God. And it, it creates this, this distance that whether you recognize it or not, it's true of each and every one of us. This is the reason that you often feel distant from God. It's the reason that relationships, even with people that you love, can be so hard. Sin is, is the reason that natural disasters take place and disease ravages our body. Sin has created a hunger in your heart that only God can satisfy. It was Augustine that once said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Is your heart restless? Do you find your heart crying out for something to satisfy? You see, this restless feeling is inescapable. If we're honest, I think that this restless feeling sets most of us on a journey of self-improvement. That was my story. I mean, for me as, as a young kid that, that grew up in church, I was thinking, well, here are these 10 commandments. Maybe I'll, I'll just try to, try to keep these. Maybe I can work my way to God if I just try to do these things. But, you know, obviously, then you read the Sermon on the Mount and you, and you see, well, you're said, it says you shouldn't murder. But if you've ever hated someone or been angry in your heart, then it's as if you've committed murder. Can't, I can't do these 10, but then Jesus says, well, they're all summarized in these two, that you love God and love other people. And I'm like, that sounds simple enough. Maybe I'll try that. And what happens? Fail again. I, I realize I cannot, I cannot meet the righteous standard of God. Maybe you, like me, feel that it is a mountain that you cannot climb either. And perhaps you understand the truth of Romans 3.23 that declares we do not meet the standard of God, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So then what do we do? 
Well, then we just resort to making our own standards. So, so we construct a moral code that perhaps seems a little more attainable than the commands of God. We think, well, well hopefully this will be good enough. And whenever that doesn't work, instead of measuring ourselves against the commands of God, then we just kind of start to compare ourselves to other people because for a brief moment, that makes us feel a little bit better. Maybe you say, well, I know what God says. I shouldn't lie. I shouldn't lust. I shouldn't be angry. I shouldn't be selfish. I shouldn't be prideful. But I mean, hey, I'm not that bad, right? No one is perfect. But unfortunately, our revised standards of of whatever self-righteous code we create our attempts to fix ourselves never actually work. It's almost like we're kids that are playing in the mud. We were, we were doing some gardening yesterday with our boys. And you, you notice in the reflection of the mirror that you've got some mud on your face. And you, you go to wipe it off. But in reality, you're just spreading the mess around. And if you, if you make some improvement, then you become prideful, right? You're like, I don't need a God. Look Look at how good I'm doing for myself. Or perhaps you try and you try and you try and then you get exhausted and you realize this will never work and you sink into despair. Either way, apart from Christ, we only spread the mess because we have no power within ourselves to clean ourselves. So what does the restless heart do when it fails to fix itself? It fills itself. It fills itself with distractions. When we can't fix our hearts, we'll just, we'll fill our hearts with busyness. We buy more stuff, right? Because it'll get here in two days anyways. We look for more education because maybe that will make us matter in the world. We fill our lives with self-centered relationships. Maybe we resort to prescription drugs just to take the edge off. We check the next item off of our bucket list. Maybe we become consumed with the success of our children because perhaps that would fill the void. And hear me out. A lot of the distractions I just mentioned are actually good things, gifts from God even, but they are not meant to replace God. You see, there are a lot of different things that people try, but the conclusion is the same, that despite our best efforts, we just can't shake the feeling that something isn't right. And the source of that feeling is our separation from God because of our sin. Because you were created to enjoy a personal relationship with God. And the only way that that can happen is if the resurrection of Jesus happened. And the only way that you can know what it's like to have a personal relationship with God is to know Christ the Lord as your Savior. You see, the reason that we celebrate Easter is because it proves that you can have a relationship with God, the God that you were created to know and love. The good news is not that you have to do enough good things to work your way to God, but that in fact, the opposite is true, that God came for you to know him. The same way that Jesus sought his disciples, he has sought you. That's why John 3.16 is such an often quoted verse, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life life. See, God sent his son to be the savior of the world. How could Christ be the savior of the world? It's because he's the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God who took on flesh. He was born through the virgin Mary. Why does that matter? Because it means that he did not inherit the corrupted sinful nature that we received from our first father, Adam, but that he was born sinless and remained sinless his entire life. 
that in every command we have failed, he has perfectly obeyed. Only he could be a spotless substitute in our place. And not only did he live the life that we should have lived, but Christ on Good Friday died the death that we should have died. Because what is the consequence for breaking just one command of God's law? It is Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but an eternal death, an everlasting death. For those that do not know Christ, an everlasting death in a real place called hell and separation from the God that you were created to know. But as grim as that reality is, the hope of the resurrection is that you can have life in Christ. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserve, that he absorbs the penalty of our sin in full and removes sin as an obstacle between you and God. In his resurrection, Jesus now lives to make you spiritually alive. And he invites all who believe in him to have life in his name. You see, I tell you this because these spiritual truths are much like gravity. They are true, whether you can fully comprehend them or understand them or even aware of them. If, if, you, if you go hiking this week and, and you accidentally misstep and you're headed over a ledge and you're falling quickly, you cannot say, well, there will be no impact for me at the bottom because I do not fully understand how the physics of gravity work. Right? That, that, would be, that would be a silly way to think. And because God has made clear in his word and through his son that, that this is true, that in your sin you are spiritually separated from God, you're, you're called to, to give an account to what you've heard. And at the same time, what great hope here that this grounds you, that because Christ did die for our sins and because he does grant life to all who believe in his death and resurrection, that regardless of what you might face this week, that your feet can be firmly planted on solid ground because you know that regardless of what tomorrow holds, today is the day that we celebrate that Christ is risen and on his throne to grant life to all who would believe. So finally... What does the resurrection prove? The resurrection proves that Jesus has the power to forgive our sins and give us a relationship with God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul just begins to postulate with the church of Corinth. What if, what if the resurrection never happened? What significance does it hold? And this is what he says. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You're actually still in your sins if Christ has not been raised. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if, if this just kind of helps us to live a little bit better for a little while, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But we are not people to be pitied because Christ indeed has been raised. And if Christ has been raised, then your sins have been forgiven and your faith in him is not futile. You see, if Jesus would have stayed dead, we would have no way to know if our sins had been fully forgiven. But the fact that Christ was raised on the third day acts like a divine receipt to declare that the debt of our sin had been paid in full. You see, in, in verse 6, that, that phrase, he was risen, is, is a passive verb declaring 
that not only was Christ able to take his life up again, but that God the Father's will was to raise Christ again and that God the Father raised Christ again. And why is that so significant? Because it is God the Father who is a good judge and good, good judges do not let criminals go free. The fine must be paid. The penalty must be executed. But God in his love for you, as his heart broke to, to place the weight of sin upon Christ, that the debt of your sin was paid in full. And to prove that the debt of your sin was paid in full, he raised Christ again to live again, to act as a receipt that secures that there is no wrath of God left for you if you are in Christ. Maybe you'd say, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. You don't know the thoughts I've thought this week. I want you to understand that your sins have been nailed to the cross. Colossians 2.14 says that he has forgiven us all of our trespasses and sins. How? By canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He nails your sin to the cross with Christ. This should flood your heart with joy and comfort. It should fill you with peace, knowing that now, the moment you trust in Christ, you have life in his name. Christian, this means that sin no longer has power over you, but that by the Holy Spirit who indwells you, you can live life in light of the resurrection. That as Philippians 1.6 says, that God who began a good work in you will bring it to the day of completion. We're gonna talk next week all about how a Christian grows. We're gonna walk through basics of the Christian life. So we're not going to get there today, but this is what I'll say. We grow in the Christian life. We, we are brought to the point in which we delight to obey. We don't obey to be accepted, but because we are accepted through Christ, we delight to obey and to grow deeper in our walk with the Lord. As I said before, the life of Jesus Christ offers eternal life to anyone that trusts in who he is and what he's done. Focus on that word in the middle, anyone. Hear again the angel's words to specifically call out Peter. Because if Peter can be shown the grace and mercy of God, then so can you. Do you think that Peter, as he's recounting these words, as he's telling John Mark, you know, this is what the angel said, not just the disciples, but he said, I mean, do you think that Peter perhaps teared up as he thought about how the Lord, through the words of the angel, would be mindful of him. He who sinned against him would be restored and brought back. This is such a great reminder for us that the church is not a group of perfect people, but imperfect people who are pursued by a loving God and wooed by his grace. And I want you to understand that Jesus is pursuing you too. You see, the beauty of this good news is not that you have to somehow clean yourself up or to work your way to God but that Jesus loves you enough to meet you where you are and too much to let you stay there. Perhaps you're wondering right now, what difference does this day make? I invite you over lunch. Maybe if you came with someone or you're sitting with someone at these tables out here on your way home, ask that question. What difference does the day of Christ's resurrection make for you? Maybe, maybe you're, you're coming into the end of the book of Mark, you've never read it before. Would you, would you just have a conversation with someone that, that you see today, someone that you know, hey, would you wanna read through the book of Mark together? Would you wanna see this whole story? We saw the end. You wanna start at the beginning, you wanna start at Mark one? 
I've already began that conversation for you. Continue it as you leave here. You see, Christ's work applies to those that trust him. This isn't about uh, choosing sides or uh, trying to come up with a, a religious belief of the afterlife. No, this is about having a personal relationship with the God that created you. So what does this mean for you? To trust him. What does it look like to trust? It looks like simply repentance and faith. That Jesus is the son of God. He's the savior of the world. But is he your savior? And it is simple. To believe that Christ is savior is to confess your sins before God. Here's the promise that applies to you. Romans 10, 9, we'll look at in a moment. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's simple. Confess your sins to God. Acknowledge that you are a sinner and he will cleanse you. He will wash you clean. We're not just turning from something. We're not just repenting, but we're turning to Christ. Would you trust completely? This is faith. It's more than just acknowledging facts about who Jesus is. It is one thing to say that the sun is hot. It is another thing to walk outside and feel the warmth of the sun's rays upon your face. Have you personally experienced who Christ is by declaring in your heart that he is Lord? Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe you'd say that right now. In, in the stillness of this room in a moment, maybe you would say, I believe that Christ did not just die in a general sense, but died for my sins and was raised that I may have life in his name. You see, the contrast between that Saturday night and the triumph of Sunday morning could not be more stark. What a difference one day could make. And my question to you is what difference will April 9th, 2023 make in your life? Because Christ has proven that he is able to change everything and he is risen. He is alive to give life today.